Thanks, brother. What well, is fun to be with you all? I bring you greetings uh, from Redemption Gateway. Um, anytime uh, Anthony's like, "Hey, could you preach in Flagstaff?" I'm like, "Sure." Could it be at a time when it's terribly hot in Phoenix? And so uh, we picked the kids up on Friday from their last day of school, came up and have had an awesome weekend. I love your city. Um, it's great to be here. I, I dream about someday living here, um, but uh, someday. Anyway, um, so one of my big hobbies is I like to see movies. I have a friend, uh, I call him my movie boyfriend, uh, and he and I go see movies that our wives don't want to see, which is uh, basically all movies, um, just about. Uh, and uh, we saw a movie recently that, that was really pretty interesting. Uh, it's called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Uh, it's in theaters now. I'm not uh, encouraging you to go see it necessarily. I'm just telling you I saw it. Uh, here's what's really interesting is it's starring Nicolas Cage playing Nicolas Cage. So it's kind of interesting because you have like Nicolas Cage, the human being, and then you have Nicolas Cage like the caricature, right? The guy that's mocked on Saturday Night Live, the, you know, oh man, you're acting like Nicolas Cage right now, right? And so there's like this, this person, who, whoever Nicolas Cage is in real life, and then there's this caricature of Nicolas Cage. What's interesting is the movie kind of lives halfway in between. So it's about uh, this rich guy who is a big fan of Nicolas Cage and invites him to, you know, he's going to pay him a million dollars to come to his birthday party. And so it's Nicolas Cage playing this fictionalized version of Nicolas Cage. And so afterwards, you're like on Wikipedia going like, Okay, was that, is that really who he's married to? Is that really what his situation is? And it was this very weird thing because you're trying to figure out, like, who's the real Nick Cage, right? And sometimes there are things from his real life that come into the movie. Other times he's clearly, like, leaning into the caricature of himself. And you kind of go, well, is it, is it who's, who's the real Nick Cage? Like, his real life, his on-screen persona of himself, these characters, who is it? And it makes me think about the different versions that we all have of ourselves, who are you? What versions of yourself have you played over the years? And which one's the real you? When I was in seventh grade, I did some acting. And I, uh, was at, I grew up in Denver, uh, had a, a role at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. I think we did about 40 shows of Twelfth Night, uh, which is a Shakespeare show. It was all adults in the cast, uh, but me and another kid were cast as like little people. <laughs> and... Uh, and so I didn't have any speaking parts, but for weeks I was inundated with Shakespeare. And so in seventh grade, I became the kid that was constantly at school with friends and everywhere talking in Shakespearean English. What wouldst thou like from the popeth machineth, right? Like that was kind of what I was doing. I mean, who doesn't hate that kid, right? That kid's terrible. Like nobody likes that kid. And so after a little while, I realized this is, this is not who I uh, want to be. Um, but that was a role I played of myself. Then I got to high school. In high school, uh, I started listening to some country music, and so I uh, went to the country uh, music, or not the country music, the country uh, and western like store. Got some Wranglers, got the cowboy boots, got the big belt buckle, the Stetson hat. You know, I and then for a while, you know, I went and I went line dancing. I know how to two-step. I kind of played that role for a little while, right? Now, I mean, look at me. I, I'm clearly a pastor. I just. <laughs> I got the look, right? I can sit in a coffee shop and watch someone walk in and go, pastor, you're for sure a pastor. I, other people I watch and I go, okay, they're either homeless or they're a worship leader. I can't tell. But like one of the, right? So, so we have these kind of parts we play, right? Who's the real me? Who's the real you? And the title of today's message is The Real You. 
Because what the Apostle Paul's doing in this part of Colossians, and this is what I love about Redemption Church, is we're all teaching through the book of Colossians. I can just kind of pick up right where I left off at Gateway, right where you guys left off last week. And in this part of chapter 3, what the Apostle Paul's doing is he's encouraging us to lean into the real you. Now, not the you that, that you define for yourself, not the you that you look deep within to try to figure out who you are, not the you that you have to travel to India to eat, pray, and love your way into finding, but the you that he says you are. So this is what we're going to talk about, the real you. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, look at this. Father, uh, we thank you for your presence here with us, and we thank you that you're inviting us uh, to embrace who we truly are, uh, to live into who we truly are. And God, we pray that you would give us insight into ourselves, insight into your word. Pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to know who we are, and how to live that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today's message is the real you. We're going to really look at three questions, and the questions are going to be this. Who is the real you? How does the real you live? And how do you feed the real you to keep living that way? Who's the real you? How does the real you live? And how do you feed the real you to keep living that way? If you have your Bible, grab it. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 begins with an important word. It says, therefore, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Therefore, anytime we read the scriptures, one of the things we have to do is whenever we bump into the word therefore, we have a question we got to ask, which some of you have heard this. Uh, the question you ask is, what is the therefore, therefore? Right? And so the, the very first word of this verse, therefore, okay, in light of what has happened, in light of what I've just been talking about, in, in light of what's come before, well, what has come before? Well, what's come before is this powerful description of who Christians actually are. Look at what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. So it says, so if, uh, you could translate that as since, since you've been raised with Christ, Seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So the first thing we find out that Paul's talking, he's saying, in light of the fact that you've been raised with Christ, he says this in verse 3, he says, for you died. That's interesting. The old you, the you that only lived for yourself, the you that just was all about you, when you come to Christ in faith and you put your hope in him, that you died. That's good news. Because that you uh, was not going to ever inherit or experience eternal life or all the fullness of the life that God intended for you to give. And this is actually what's symbolized in baptism. This is why with baptism, we go down into the water like we're going down into the grave. And it's this picture of the old you passing away. He says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who's your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So in other words, your whole life, your past, your present, your future, who you really are is bound up in Jesus. Now, this is surprising to us because we don't seem all that spectacular. We seem pretty ordinary. We seem pretty, eh, ho-hum, I don't know. Yeah, they're okay. But here's what he's saying. He's saying the real you is raised, died with Christ, hidden with Christ, will appear with Christ. The real you might, even though you look kind of on the outside like pretty eh, the real you is spectacular. It, it reminds me of this story I read about this guy named, named Ronald Reed. Ronald Reed spent most of his career uh, working as a gas station attendant. After that, he moved to being a janitor at a high school. 
his colleagues all talked about how he always had this ratty coat that he had to actually use safety pins to button together. And when Ronald Reed died, a bunch of organizations started receiving donations in the name of Ronald Reed. And they pieced together that Ronald Reed, though he wore this ratty coat all the time, actually had $8 million. He looked like this ratty coat school janitor. The real Ronald Reed was wealthy. And that's what I want to tell you. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he's saying. That's the real us. The real us is is that. He he continues this theme when we look in this particular passage. Look at verse 9. He says, uh, here's the real you. You've put off the old self with its practices. You've put on the new self, verse 10. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. So you're, you're being renewed. You've got a new self. It says in verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. So that's who you are. You might think, oh, I'm just ho-hum. I just wear this ratty coat. No, 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 no. You're, you're, you've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, your real, true, authentic self is coming back when he appears. In the meantime, you've got a new self. You're being renewed after the image of Jesus, and you are holy and dearly loved. That's who you actually are. Should you be the real you? Yeah. You just got to remember who the real you is. Uh, we have these preaching collective meetings where we gather together with all the different preachers from all the different congregations, and we uh, pool our insight uh, or our folly, uh, depending on uh, the week. Um, but the week we were talking about this passage, uh, your pastor, Anthony G., said, oh, man, here's this great quote. And uh, I looked at it, and I was like, yeah, that quote is good enough. I will use it in the sermon uh, at Redemption Flagstaff. And so here's a quote from Kevin DeYoung. Here's what he says in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness. He says, if I had to summarize... New Testament ethics, in one sentence, here's how I would put it, be who you are. He says, if I was going to summarize all of New Testament ethics, that means like how you actually are supposed to live. If I were to summarize that in one sentence, here's what DeYoung says, it would be be who you are. He says, that might sound strange, almost heretical, given our culture's emphasis on being true to yourself. But like so many of the worst errors in the world, this one represents a truth powerfully perverted. When people say, relax, you were born that way, or quit trying to be something you're not and just be the real you, they're stumbling upon something very biblical. God does want you to be the real you. He does want you to be true to yourself, but the you he's talking about is the you that you are by grace, not by nature. God doesn't say, relax, you were born that way, but he does say, good news, you were reborn another way. The, the real you. Who's the real you? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, we've just talked about it. And so the, here's the invitation then of the New Testament ethic is be who you actually are. Take off your ratty coat. It's one of the saddest things to me about that story. This guy who owed $8 million lived like he was broke. Are you living like you're broke? Or are you living like you actually are? Because what's happening in the rest of this passage is Paul's going to give us some ethics. He's going to say, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to live. Here's what you need to put off. Here's what you need to put on. And in light of that reality, we're being called to be who we truly are. So that raises a second question, which is this. How does the real you live? 
How does the real you live? Now, the language that Paul uses here in Colossians chapter 3 is the same language he uses in Ephesians 4. It's the language of putting off and putting on. It has with it the idea of clothing, right? So that's why the ratty coat is actually a pretty good illustration of this. It's because you're supposed to take off this old you, this old conduct, this old way of living, and put on stuff that matches who you actually are. But look at how serious this language is. Look at verse 5. He says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Wow. <laughs> okay, so he's going to say in a minute, put it away, put it off. But, but here he's saying something even, even stronger, put it to death. That's not how we tend to treat our sin. Uh, we, we tend to treat our sins like, like our family uh, down in the valley treats it when a roly-poly gets in the house. When a roly-poly gets in the house, you kind of pick it up and you go, Oh, look, look at what it does. You go, yeah, I don't really want my house filled with roly-polies, but, you know, but it's so cute. I don't want to kill it. I don't want to destroy it. Like, we'll just toss it outside. Now, occasionally, the other thing that happens, I know this doesn't happen a lot for you. Maybe in certain parts of uh, remote edges of town this happens. But for us down in the valley, it happens a lot. Sometimes we don't find a roly-poly. We find a scorpion. When you find a scorpion, you don't pick it up and go, ooh, Right, like the first time we ever had a scorpion in our, in our house, we, Molly and I were out on a date, and our oldest was, uh, or no, I think it was our second was, a, was little, and she asked the babysitter, why is there a crab in the hallway? <laughs> right, you don't, you don't get the scorpion and go, oh, so cute. You know what, I don't want to kill this thing. We'll just, we'll just toss it out on the porch. Because that thing's coming back. Right, this is what people do. They get blowtorches. And they do all kinds of, I mean, what we do is, like in our house, is we find duct tape, and we duct tape it, and then we smash it, right? And that's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying the tendency in you and the tendency in me is to treat our sin like it's just this little cute roly-poly. Yeah, I don't want it in my house, but I don't want to get rid of it totally. Because, you know, I might be in stress sometimes, and I might need a little release. And I might, uh, it's comfortable. I, I, I might want to hang on to it. No, he says, no, 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 no. Sin is a scorpion. It's sneaking in. It's slithering in. Get rid of it. Put it to death. The other word that he uses in in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, but now put away all the following. And he describes more sins. This word put away means to to throw it aside. It's the word used in Matthew 14.3 when John the Baptist is thrown into prison. It's the word used in Acts chapter 7 verse 58 when the apostle Paul is cast out of the city and stoned to death. They try to stone him to death. It's this throwing it into prison, throwing it out, throwing it away. That's the language that Paul's trying to use here. So how does the real you live? It doesn't get cozy with your sin. It doesn't say, well, let me just put you in my pocket because I might need you for a hard day. It gets rid of it. It throws it aside. It casts it away. So what should be put away then in this new way of living out the real you? What should be put away? Well, the way he describes it in verse 5 is your earthly nature, your earthly nature. This earthly nature is this, this indwelling sin that just keeps coming back. It just keeps coming back. It just keeps coming back. What Paul's saying here is he's saying you need a robust holiness immune system because your, your, your earthly nature just keeps producing sin. I read something amazing this week. This is incredible. This is from a, a book called uh, The Body 
a, a user's guide for people who have one or something like that. <laughs> the guy's name is Bill Bryson. And he said that one of the things that, that we've learned is that uh, your body, my body, every week produces somewhere between one to five cancer cells every week. And your immune system kills them. Your body is producing cancer constantly, and most of the time it's done away with. Here's what he says. He goes, think of that, a couple dozen times a week, well, over a thousand times a year, you get the most dreaded disease of our age, and nearly every time your body saves you. Now, here's what I know. Sometimes your body doesn't. My dad was just diagnosed with tongue cancer. And sometimes it, your body doesn't do it, but your body does it a lot. And here's the thing is sin, your earthly nature just keeps coming up and it keeps coming up. And what Paul's describing here is this immune system that you need to just keep putting it to death, keep putting it away, keep killing it so that it doesn't destroy you. Now, the earthly nature is described in kind of three lists of sins in this passage. You have a kind of a sexual list, a relational list, and a tribal list. So there's three kinds of sins, at least in this passage. This isn't the only description of our sins, but this is a sum of what needs to be put away is sexual sins, relational sins, tribal sins. The sexual sins uh, begin in verse 5. It says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality. That's just anything that's outside of one man, one woman marriage is sexual immorality. Impurity which is any kind of contamination related to sin. Lust is your uncontrolled urges. Evil desire is your temptation that you coddle and kind of let your mind run on it. And greed, and that's interesting because when I think greed, I think of money. This word's also translated, some of the other translations, as covetousness. It's, it, it, this, this list of sin actually goes from specific to general. He's saying what's, what's driving all of this sexual sin is actually a greed. It's a desire for more experiences and more illicitness and more, ooh, that really gets me going. Any of you who've engaged in things that you know are sexually sinful know that the things that really fire you up at the beginning, after a while they don't anymore, and you've got to take it up a notch, take it up a notch, take it up a notch. That's greed. That's what Paul's saying. You got to put that away because it's idolatry, he says in verse 5. That's the sexual sin. He said, Are you coddling that? Are you taking it seriously? Are you treating it like a roly poly? Are you treating it like a scorpion? That's a ratty coat. Paul's going, Hey, 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 I'm not telling you to get rid of it just because it's wrong. I'm telling you to get rid of it because it's not the real you. You might think the real you, because you've bought into the lies of the world, is just your sexual desire. That's not the real you. The real you is who you are in Christ. So there's sexual sins. There's also relational sins. These kind of get it a lot related to rage and anger. He says in verse 8, but now put away all the following. Anger, which is just a kind of seething hatred. Rage which is when your anger breaks out in deeds or in words. Uh, malice, which is when you think, I, I want to hurt somebody. Slander, which is malice in your words. And words can be like sword thrusts that kill. And then filthy language. Jesus was the one who said it was out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart the thumbs tweet. Out of the overflow of the heart. So there's some sins that are sexual, there's some sins that are relational, it's this anger, it's this malice, it's this hatred, it's this, man, I just can't stand people, I don't know, I don't like them. Here's what's really interesting to me, 
When you think about even just these two categories, you have sexual sins and kind of anger relational sins. Different cultures are okay with one and not okay with the other. Right? Think about this. Right? The, the, <laughs> here we go. I, I get to go home after this. So, Anthony, you can pick up the pieces of what I'm about to say. But think about this for a moment. The kind of political right in our country, the MAGA crowd, real concerned about all the redefinition around sexuality. The culture is going in a, a freight train of sexual sin that the right is very concerned about. But the right's kind of okay with anger. Hey, as long as you own the libs. Hey, you know what? You just, hey, say whatever you need to, man. You're, you're a fighter. That's interesting. But the left, they're totally okay with all kinds of sexual things. They go, hey, whatever that is that you want to do, that's actually the real. You lean into that. But, but they get real upset about when you're mean, when you say bad stuff. That's interesting. Now, here's what Paul's going. This is why Paul's going, hey, Christians, church, wake up. The real you isn't right or left. The real you's not a Republican or a Democrat. The real you is not an elephant or a donkey. The real you is a lamb. That's the real you. Put it all away. All the sexual stuff, all the relational stuff, and then the third category, which right and left can get in on, which is tribal sin. Tribal sin. Look at what it says in verse 11. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. The barbarian, just so you don't, if you don't understand that, a barbarian is, was just a contemptuous word for anyone who didn't speak your language. Hmm. A Scythian was an extreme example of a barbarian. It was like the worst kind. And what Paul here is saying, he's going, hey, in your culture, all around you, there is this temptation to tribalize. To line up who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, by what language do they speak, by what culture do they embrace, by what sort of religious backgrounds do they have. That's not what defines you. Right? This, is, this is just all the time. I, I love what Tom Wright says. He says, the ancient world, just like the modern, was an elaborate network of prejudice, suspicion, and arrogance, so ingrained as to be thought natural and normal. These distinctions, Paul declares with a breathtaking challenge, have become irrelevant in Christ. How does the real you live? You're, you're fighting off sexual sin. You're fighting off anger and relational sin. You're fighting off tribal distinctions. You're embracing Christ, which means you have to put some things on. What should you put on? Well, you should put on the real you. Uh, we've got a five-year-old who's over in kids' ministry right now uh, raising all kinds of uh, chaos, I'm sure. His name's Hank. Uh, he's a great time. And uh, most days we let him dress himself. And so occasionally, depending on what we're doing, uh, we'll go, hey, Hank, uh, go pick out your clothes. And he'll pick them out. And based on what we're doing, like maybe we're going to church and he needs to wear something nicer. Or maybe like we're doing something kind of that's going to be dirty and he actually wants to dress up for once or whatever it is. And there's times when he'll come out and we'll go, hey, Hank, uh, that ain't it, man. Uh, that ain't it. Like, dude, we're, we're, uh, we're going to be going somewhere nice. Okay, you got to take all that off. Now, 
When we say, Hank, you got to take all that off, we don't mean we'd like you to go naked. Right? What do, we, what do we mean? We go, well, take all that off. Put on the right thing. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's going, I want you to put on some stuff. I want you to put on a number of things. Look at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, because this is the real you, I want you to act like it. Well, how do you act like it? Well, put on compassion. It's just a sensitivity to the needs of others. It's looking at others with love, kindness, being upright and beneficial to other people. He says, put on humility, right? This is about your relationship to yourself. If compassion and kindness are about your relationship to others, humility is about your relationship to yourself, that you're selfless, you're not thinking of yourself as higher than you ought to. He says, put on gentleness. Gentleness is your approach to others. He says, put on patience. Patience is your reaction to others. Well, what does it look like to put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience? It looks like the next few verses. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against one another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. So what we put on is this relationship with others where we're looking for kindness. We're looking for ways to bless. We're looking to go, hey, you go first. This isn't me fighting for my rights. By the way, this is going to become key because next week we're talking about marriage. And if you're in a marriage where it's all about fighting for your rights, it ain't going well. And this begins with the way we just treat everybody. We bear with one another. Sometimes bearing with one another is harder than forgiving, isn't it? Because if you just sin against me and you own up to it and say, will you forgive me? It's, I can oftentimes go, okay, I'll forgive you. But if you're just generally a pain in the neck, bearing with you, right? Like bearing, I think about the people who bear with me. I mean, good, good gracious, right? It's one thing to like do a workout where you just have to bang out four sets of five reps. It's another thing to do a farmer's carry for a half hour. Either way, that's the real you. Now, think about this. Who does this sound like? Compassion, kindness. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. It says in verse 14, above all, put on love. Does that ring a bell to anyone? Right, if anyone's ever been to Sunday school classes, where you use your answer for that, okay? You, you get one a week, you can use it. Does that sound like anyone? Jesus. But think about it. Not in a Sunday school way, think about this is what makes Jesus so amazing. Who else do you know who is always like that? Nobody. Nobody. But he is. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, hey, put off that sexual sin, that relational sin, that tribal sin, and put on the real you. Who's the real you? It's who you are in Christ. That's the real you. So who's the real you? It's who you are in Christ. How do you live like the real you? You put off the sin. You put on the righteousness in your actual life. How do you feed the real you? Here's where we'll conclude. And this is where we get into verses 16 and 17 to, yeah, 16 and 17. Here's how you feed the real you. A lot. Think about this. This is Herculean, isn't it? Just... If, if, you were to, if you and I were to actually take this seriously and not just go, oh, that was a good message. That was kind of cool how he organized it, you know. 
sexual, relational, tribal. I see what he did there. But if we actually were like, no, I'm going to actually try to do this. I'm going to try to totally put to death lust and anger and selfishness. I'm going to like really try to kill it and put on humility, compassion, selflessness. I mean, that's a Herculean effort, right? That's like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I'm going to be able to have the reason. Like, I could really try for about 10 minutes. And then I'm going to kind of run out of juice. It reminds me of, you know, a number of years ago when Michael Phelps, my, my wife was a swimmer in college, and we just love swimming at the Olympics. And I remember when Michael Phelps was like, he was going to go for eight gold medals. And it was this Herculean thing, and he had all these swims and all these swims and all these swims. And there were so many stories at the time about how many calories Michael Phelps had to consume. I mean, he was just constantly eating to be able to sustain that kind of output. And I think the reality is also true for our spiritual life, that if we're going to actually live in this new way, which is so foreign to our culture and it's so foreign to our flesh, then something has to feed it. Because that's why it's so easy to default back into sin is because everything in the culture is just feeding sin. So we're going to have to do some, some feeding. And there's some, some words here that describe this kind of feeding. Here's what we have to feed on. Verse 15, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts. That's the picture of remembering. How do we feed this new life? You got to remember. You got to remember you were at war with God. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, you're now at peace. Remember that. Let that rule your heart. He says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. That's generally speaking, the word of God and specifically the word of the gospel, the good news to sinners. So there's remembering, there's engaging with the words of Scripture. There's also singing. Look at what he describes, what happens when the word fills you. It says, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. I have found singing to be such a weapon. It reminds me, oh, yeah, this is what I believe. Oh, yeah, this is what I want to live for. So it's remembering, it's engaging scripture, it's singing. And then, and then don't, don't miss this, is that all throughout this whole passage, in verse 15 and verse 16 and verse 17, it's about thanking. Thanking. Look at verse 15. And be thankful. Verse 16, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Remembering. Engaging scripture, singing, thanking. Friends, connect the dots here. This is why you come to church. What do we do at church? We remember, we engage scripture, we sing, we thank. But here's the thing Michael Phelps wasn't going to get by if he just, you know, had one really big, like, Buca de Beppo meal before the Olympics. Right? It's, you got to be constantly feeding, constantly feeding. And here's the thing. Here, here's what I love about this. If that feels like pressure to you, if that feels like, well, now you're heaping duties on me. No, 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 no. I'm saying, do you remember the real you? The one that says, my chains are gone. My heart went free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I want you. That's the real you. Is it a burden to feed that person? No. 
It's just remembering and engaging and singing and thanking. And it's this constant thing that we do and we feed it. And the more we do that, the more we actually become who we truly are. I want to tell you this morning, you are not your past. You are not your job. You're not your marriage. You're not your parenting. You're not your potential. You're not your sins. You're not your insecurities. Here's who you are. Verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's you. That's who you are. What a joy to spend the rest of our lives becoming that person. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for your word. And we pray that you would give us faith to believe what you say about us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.